Welcome to Failed Utopia, the podcast about utopian ideas and paradise lost. We look at utopian concepts of the past, present, and future, as well as utopian societies and communes, which promise the world to eager followers, but inevitably fail when it all starts to unravel. again, Failed Utopians. This is Anna, your unsettling podcast host. Today's story is creepy, spooky, and gruesome. It spans centuries, and it may represent one of the deadliest cults in the world. Big cats, colonizers, the slave trade, cannibalism, supernatural strength-granting rituals, and a whole lot of blood and entrails. Some episodes of this podcast contain disturbing or upsetting topics. Use your discretion for yourself and those around you. This won't be appropriate for kids. If you feel you need support, please find help through a crisis line, mental health professional, or a friend or family member. I have resources including crisis hotline phone numbers listed in the show notes. In the dense jungle outside the French colony of Libreville, Gabon, in West Africa, a creature covered in silky fur and armed with razor-sharp knives for claws silently stalks its prey. The unfortunate and unwitting victim has no chance to defend himself when suddenly he's set upon by the slashing claws that eviscerate and mutilate him beyond recognition. What's left of his corpse will be found surrounded by the tracks of a big cat. But there's a plot twist. The creature who made this gruesome kill wasn't a cat at all. He was a man. For decades that stretched into centuries, men belonging to the secretive Leopard Society terrorized West Africa with horrific bloody murders, particularly in Sierra Leone, Nigeria, Ghana, Ivory Coast, Liberia, Tanzania, and Gabon. Colonial and tribal law enforcement tried and failed over many years and across multiple national borders to stop the ritualistic killings, which some say continue to this day. Around the 1870s, mysterious clusters of killings were occurring around West Africa. In many ways, the corpses appeared to be animal killings due to the throats torn open, entrails ripped out and scattered, and slashing claw wounds all over the body, sometimes with limbs, meat, and organs missing, not to mention the telltale tracks of a big cat. The killings usually took place on the outskirts of a village or out in the wilds, making the big cat attack theory all the more plausible. 
But that explanation didn't tell the whole story. As you can imagine, local populations near where the brutal slayings took place were terrified of the attacks, which could occur unexpectedly at any time. Traveling alone outside of town at night would not have been advised. Imagine getting attacked by a leopard. Oh, no, I I can't think about it. It's too scary. I mean, that's bad enough. But then imagine you think there's an animal attacking you only to realize it's a guy under that fur coat, cutting you to ribbons and ripping your guts out. It's really almost too horrible to think about, but this is failed utopia, emphasis on the fail. So here we are, thinking about it. Yeah. For some African tribes, the leopard is a powerful totem animal that guides the spirits of the dead. And as it turns out, a leopard-based secret society has existed in West Africa for hundreds of years, going back at least as early as the 1700s and perhaps even beginning in the 1500s. Some speculate as a response to the arrival of Europeans to their shores and the rise of colonization and the Atlantic slave trade. Back then, they may have been more of a warrior society and less of a deadly cult. But by the 1800s, things were getting violent. Killings of colonizers and slave traders began, and they tended to be carried out like ritual sacrifices, perhaps disguised as animal killings, And they were sporadic, not noticeable clusters of many killings in a short time span, like the one that occurred in the late 1870s. That period of time was marked by a rapid expansion in both the number of murders, mostly of French and English colonists, and the numbers of Leopard Society members, which may have been in the thousands, though nobody really knows. Members were recruited into small factions or cells in villages across West Africa, and they didn't necessarily have much contact with each other. This decentralized and dispersed mode of operation made the cult extremely hard to track and individual murderers difficult to impossible to identify, allowing many small, loosely affiliated groups in several countries to operate both in secrecy and with impunity. These secret society members learned to move and fight in a way that mimicked the leopard and dressed themselves in leopard skin and a mask or skull. And they fashioned weapons out of leopard claws and teeth and later used claw-like weapons made of sharpened steel or even created mouthpieces full of sharpened metal teeth. Sometimes they had footwear that would leave the prints of a leopard. The cultists believed that after killing a victim or sacrifice, they could brew a magical elixir called Borfima 
from their victim's blood, organs, and intestines, allowing them to drink it and absorb the strength of their enemy. The Borfema potion could supposedly even grant them the ability to actually transform themselves into leopards. This sounds pretty far out there, but it actually has connections to some commonly held beliefs, especially from a couple hundred years ago. Many people would have believed that consuming an enemy would give you their strength, and shape-shifting, spirits, and all sorts of magic were certainly a part of many, many cultures all around the world at that time, including in Africa. In the 1930s, a German missionary doctor named Werner Jung, working in Liberia, encountered multiple instances of ritual killings and attempted killings by the Leopard Society and another group called the Crocodile Society. In a book called African Jungle Doctor, he described the gruesome scene of a Leopard Society attack. Okay, guys, listen up. This is a very graphic description of a murder victim. If you don't want to hear it, please just skip ahead a bit. About 90 seconds should do it. There, on a mat in a house, I found the horribly mutilated body of a 15-year-old girl. The neck was torn to ribbons by the teeth and claws of the animal, the intestines were torn out, and the pelvis shattered, and one thigh was missing. A part of the thigh gnawed to the bone, and a piece of the shin bone lay near the body. It seemed at first glance that only a beast of prey could have treated the girl's body in this way, but closer investigation brought certain peculiarities to light which did not fit in with the picture. I observed, for example, that the skin at the edge of the undamaged part of the chest was torn by strangely regular gashes about an inch long. Also, the liver had been removed from the body with a clean cut no beast could make. I was struck, too, by a piece of intestine, the ends of which appeared to have been smoothly cut off. And lastly, there was the fracture of the thigh, a classic example of fracture by bending. In addition to the evidence Dr. Werner found on the girl's remains, something else pointed to a human killer. Among the leopard tracks around the body, there were also human footprints. This murder also represents something of a change in tactics. As I mentioned earlier, during the colonial period of history when Europeans would travel to Africa to exploit resources and procure slaves, the Leopard Society would frequently target white men, including colonists and slavers. This could be viewed as a type of retribution or even self-defense. I guess I cannot condone murder under any circumstances, but I also wouldn't cry my little eyes out over the murders of a few slave traders as they ventured through Africa to kidnap, buy, and sell human beings. There might even be just a teensy bit of schadenfreude to be enjoyed there. 
These men would generally be attacked just after dark out on lonely roads or taken off into the jungle. But as that period of time was winding down, the early 1900s brought leopard murders more to Africans themselves. This was even more terrifying as the victims could be of any age, gender, or walk of life, and attacks began occurring in people's homes. This created a large amount of fear. I would imagine it to be something along the lines of the chilling effect of knowing a serial killer is on the loose. Jack the Ripper in 1880s London or 1980s Milwaukee with Jeffrey Dahmer prowling the streets. But at least those killers had an M.O. By this time, the leopard cult murders could happen to anyone at any time, anywhere, and had been documented across large swaths of the African continent, not just the West. The cultists also started erecting massive stone shrines in the jungle, which were stained with the blood of their human sacrifices and decorated with the bones of victims and gruesome effigies made of human and leopard body parts. Sometimes leopard men would hunt in pairs or small groups, while other times a body yeli would be appointed to carry out a solo mission of obtaining a victim and bringing them back to their sacrificial altar in the jungle for slaughter. Whether or not you believe the murders of European colonists and slavers were justified or at least had some logic behind it, the majority of the Leopard Society killings were actually of Africans and appear to have had the motive of being a blood sacrifice for the cult and not a noble defense of Africa. Murders were really picking up in the 20th century. In the period from 1912 to 1914, the estimated number of Leopard Society murders was somewhere in the hundreds. The situation was so dire that village authorities and colonial law enforcement attempted to team up to bring an end to the carnage. Unfortunately, they didn't meet with much success. Due to the anonymous and highly secretive nature of Leopard Society membership, it would be just about impossible to identify members, let alone which individuals may have carried out murders and ritual sacrifices. Remember, around that time, investigative techniques would have been only rudimentary and relied on villagers to turn in suspects. Predictably, it became a witch hunt. Over the next few years, many men were accused, rounded up, and hanged. There's not really any way of knowing how many of these men were actually leopard men. I believe the utility of these executions was more a form of security theater than anything else. It made it look like the authorities were in control and that the leopard society was finally being brought to heel and members eradicated from West African society. After about four years, the Leopard Society murders did appear to grind to a halt. I don't know whether it was because law enforcement actually had executed actual members or because the witch hunt had a chilling effect on the leopard men's activities, but the pause was only temporary. The campaign to eradicate the Leopard Society ultimately failed. In fact, it was just getting started. 
much of the carnage was yet to come. By 1930, the Liberian sect of the Leopard Society was back with a vengeance. And that brings us back to the beginning of the episode and Werner Young's account of the slaying of that poor teenage girl in her own home. Young publicized his report on that gruesome killing, and in response, the Leopard Society started varying their tactics even more, becoming as unpredictable as possible, which of course thwarted attempts by authorities to intervene and stop the killings. There was no discernible pattern. The victims could be anyone, and the killings could take place anywhere or anytime. Even the perpetrator likely wouldn't be the same person or persons from one murder to the next. By this time, you might be asking yourself, what's the utopian aspect of this story? The fail aspect, I hope, is obvious to all of you, right? But as far as the utopian ideas, there are two. Ejecting brutal European colonizers and slavers from Africa is one. Freedom, in other words. And the second thing is gaining strength from that blood elixir, the Borfema. To some of us, that fail goes without saying, but humans all over the world have attributed supernatural qualities to various animal body parts when consumed. The leopard men simply took this common custom to the next level with their cannibalism. By the way, so did the Aztecs and many others around the world across the ages. Our understanding of cannibalism today is that it's disgusting and evil. But historically speaking, many cultures have incorporated cannibalism into their ceremonies, rituals, and even funeral rites sometimes having spiritual or reverential significance. In many other cases, consuming the enemy was more or less a sign of power and dominance. In the 1970s, Ugandan leader Idi Amin was accused of cannibalizing his opponents, to which he said, I don't like human flesh. It's too salty for me. Here's a passage from Britannica's Cannibalism, Cultures, Cures, Cuisine, and Calories. Medicinal cannibalism seems to have existed around the world, with nearly every body part ending up in some concoction. Chinese compounds included human organs as well as nails and hair, while in early Greece, human blood was thought to treat epilepsy. And even as they were decrying cannibals in the New World as savages, Europeans were routinely consuming human parts as medicinal treatment. Followers of the 16th century Swiss physician Paracelsus, for example, sought to cure dysentery with medicines that contained powdered human skulls. And in 17th century England, pulverized mummies were used in treatments for epilepsy and stomach aches. In some cases, not just any mummy would do. One concoction called for the body of a red-headed man who had died from hanging. While the Leopard Society was wreaking blood-soaked havoc across Africa, 
sensational stories about the ritualistic killings and cannibalism became somewhat of a curiosity back in the colonial nations of the West. The leopard cult even found its way into Western stories in the adventures of Tintin and Tarzan. I actually started to wonder if some of the characteristics of the Marvel superhero Black Panther could have some connection to the history or legend of the Leopard Society, but I didn't find anything to back that theory up, despite the passing similarity with Wakanda, the fictional African utopia that rebuffed colonial rule, a human but also supernatural-seeming Leopard Man protector, a Black Panther is a type of leopard, by the way, and of course, the cat suit complete with claws and masks. An obvious big difference, being a superhero, the Black Panther doesn't kill, and he certainly doesn't cannibalize his victims to gain strength. He uses technology for that. There are a number of other pop culture items that seem like they would have some connection to the Leopard Society, but actually don't, such as the 1943 noir thriller, The Leopard Man. That movie was actually based on a fictional tale about a serial killer in Mexico who used the opportunity of an escaped leopard on the loose as a cover to commit murders of his own. While we're talking about stories, I think it's important to note that much of the available written information about the Leopard Society was recorded by white colonizers and other outsiders. Stories and legends about the Leopard Society that were passed on through oral history among Africans is likely to be somewhat different and variable across different regions of Africa. Not to mention that the Leopard Society is just one part of a long tradition of animal-based secret societies, including the related Lion Society and the Crocodile Society, just for example. What we know from historical writings by Europeans is limited and maybe only a small part of the bigger picture. In the early 1930s, many of the European soldiers who had acted as law enforcement in the West African colonies had returned home to Europe, leaving much fewer numbers and less experienced officers behind. By the time World War II was over in the mid-1940s, many French and British soldiers were ordered back to African colonies to again serve as law enforcement. The Leopard Men were not happy about the return of more foreigners occupying colonies in Africa and ramped up their murderous rampages. This led to a very bloody period of time. In 1946, 46 murders were attributed to the Leopard Society. In the first seven months of 1947, 43 more people were killed. Many of the bodies were too mangled to be identified. A colonial official wrote, The stage has now been reached when every single adult male is a potential leopard murderer. Real leopards prowl through the thick, six-foot-high bush which fringes the twisting, dusty tracks. 
but man leopards with a blind belief in their primitive cult are now taking human lives at the rate of more than one a week in this blood-stained patch of Africa. These types of reports piqued the interest of newspapers back in England and France, sparking wide interest around Europe in the African leopard cult, and perhaps fueling the European perception of Africa as a dark and savage continent. Terry Wilson was a colonial officer assigned in Nigeria in 1947, and in six short months on the job came across many ritual killings. Determined to put a stop to it, he began a campaign to unmask Leopard Society members. While initially thwarted by the secretive nature of the group and an unwillingness to come forward with information on the part of fearful local people, he finally caught a break when he hid in the jungle near a path and witnessed a leopard man covered in blood coming out of the vegetation. He watched him take off his leopard costume and recognized him as a local village chief named Nagogo. He followed Nagogo home and then went for backup. They raided the chief's home and found his leopard costume and weapons. Following a tip, they also dug up his yard and found evidence of 13 Borfema victims. After he was arrested and put in jail, other Leopard Society members murdered his wife and teenage daughter as a message of intimidation to stop him or other villagers from turning in other leopard men. Terry Wilson sought to use the situation to his advantage. He hoped that when the chief realized what his fellow leopard men had done to his wife and daughter, that he would be willing to turn them in to law enforcement as revenge. Sadly, this plan backfired completely when Wilson took the chief to see the mangled remains of his family, and the chief collapsed and died of heart failure on the spot. This is interesting to me because apparently this chief had committed many brutal slayings of his own, but when it came to his own family, it was too much to bear. As law enforcement put more efforts towards stopping the murders, the Leopard Society grew more emboldened and even carried out a murder in the courtyard of a police compound. The Leopard Men's uncanny ability to appear and disappear like magic, combined with local folklore about shapeshifting and other magic, led to widespread belief that the Leopard Men had supernatural abilities, perhaps hindering local villagers from coming forward with information and even seeping into the psyches of the colonial officers trying and failing to stop the killers who by this time seemed all but unstoppable, despite all their best efforts. Many of the colonial law enforcement officers were French and English soldiers who were suffering from severe PTSD after their time serving in World War II, which also gave them some difficulty in carrying out their duties. Attributing supernatural abilities to the Leopard Men may have been one way of coping with the frustration and humiliation of being unable to best them. 
Some of their efforts even backfired. For example, enforcing curfews just drove up the number of attacks within homes, making people feel even less safe. Terry Wilson saw the writing on the wall and determined that he needed to catch and hopefully wound or kill one of the leopard men as soon as possible in order to dispel the growing rumors that they were in fact immortal or magical. And finally, in 1948, he devised a trap. A young villager agreed to pose as bait for the leopard men. Wilson and the boy would walk down a road through the jungle, which had been the site of previous attacks, and Wilson had his men hiding at points along the road. After almost an hour of walking, Wilson and the boy heard a loud, high-pitched shriek, and a leopard man leapt out and attacked them with claws and a club. One of Wilson's hidden officers rushed to their aid, and in the struggle, he managed to wound the leopard man with a knife. But the leopard man struck him in the head with his club, crushing his skull and killing him. The leopard man was able to escape, and an officer was dead. But the leopard man was also wounded. However, attempting to follow the trail of blood and search the village for a wounded man failed to turn anything up. Now, this is gruesome, but what Wilson decided to do was leave the body of the officer who had been killed lying in the road in another attempt to bait the leopard man, hoping he would come back to collect the remains, perhaps for Borfema. Sure enough, at midnight, as Wilson lay in wait in the bushes, the leopard man slunk back to the body, crawling on all fours like a cat. As he bent over the body of the dead man, Wilson lunged out and attempted to overpower him. The two struggled, and when the leopard man lunged for Wilson with his metal claws, Wilson drew his gun and shot him. Wilson brought the body of the leopard man back to the police compound in the village to show everyone that it was in fact just a regular man. With the spell broken, so to speak, it opened the floodgates for local people to come forward with evidence against other suspected leopard men. Wilson and his officers were then able to conduct investigations, and over 70 men were arrested, 40 of whom were hanged. Supposedly, this time around, the purge was legitimate, unlike the witch hunt that had taken place a few decades earlier. They looked for evidence, such as human remains on the property of the accused, and used what they had learned from what happened to the chief Nagogo. Knowing that the Leopard Society would target the families of men who had been arrested, officers would stake out the homes of their families waiting for the leopard men to appear, and they were actually able to apprehend several men in this manner. Wilson also made sure that tribal chiefs were present at the hangings of convicted leopard men. He wanted to do everything he could to dispel the superstitions surrounding the supernatural nature of these leopard men. He assumed that if the chiefs could be convinced that they were nothing but normal humans, it would squash the magical thinking which had surrounded the cult for decades. 
Wilson's success in Nigeria created a model and example for other colonial law enforcement and village leadership around West Africa. And by the 1950s, the Leopard Society killings had largely ended. However, as you may have guessed, that's not quite the end of the story. This group has a long, long history of going dormant and underground for periods of time, only to resurface later. And of course, it would be unreasonable to assume that purges by law enforcement could have unmasked all the group's members. Sporadic killings linked to the Leopard Society continued to pop up fairly regularly until at least the 1980s. After that, things were mostly quiet, but there was one killing just a few years ago that some believe may have been an attack by a leopard man. In 2015 in Liberia, a 17-year-old boy was found in a remote field, missing his internal organs, eyes, ears, and tongue. It was immediately suspected that they had been harvested for a Borfema ritual. A friend of the victim confessed to bringing him to that remote location, but claimed that a government official he was acquainted with had bribed him to bring him and his secret society a victim. Police briefly looked into this government official, but being that he was a powerful man in government, they dropped their investigation into him and only charged the victim's young friend, who remains in prison and sticks to his story. Now, we don't know if this murder had anything to do with the Leopard Society, or if perhaps the killer simply seized on this secret society story to throw off the authorities. But given the particular history of this group, I don't think it's unreasonable to suspect, as many people do, that the Leopard Society may still exist in some form today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts to help other people find it. Tell your friends about it, and if you want to support the pod directly and help keep new episodes coming, you can donate to the show through the link in the show notes. Connect and stay in the loop on the website, failedutopia.com, or the Facebook page at failedutopiapod. Failed Utopia episodes are written and produced by me, Anna Roberts. The burning palm tree painting featured on the cover is by artist Perry Vasquez. My intro music is by Elliot Middleton. See you next time.